Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. I have with me today Rabbi Cohen. And Rabbi, the first time I met you was around seven years ago. And you were teaching a class. It was the very early stages of my learning. And you taught me something that I am so thankful that I learned because it was really the perfect foundation to build my Torah studies on. And you described the reason God created the world, and you did it through a parable. And you told the parable of a wealthy man who meets an impoverished man, a man who has no food, no home, who's living in rags. And the wealthy man brings him in his home, gives him a very a nice wing to his home, very beautiful accommodations, gives him the finest clothing, the nicest food. And over time, the poor man comes to the wealthy man's office. And the wealthy man says, what can I do for you? Is there anything else you need? Anything else you lack? And the poor man said, there is something that I am missing. There is something that I lack. And the wealthy man said, what is it? Whatever you need, I will give it to you. And the poor man said, I lack the ability to reciprocate all the kindness you've done for me. I want the ability to earn it. And you went on to explain that's exactly why God created the world, that he wanted simply to bestow pleasure, but our collective souls in the heavenly realm were lacking because we wanted the ability to reciprocate all the kindness that God did for us. And so he created this world where we would have that opportunity. Did I tell that story right? You did it great. All right. And I couldn't wait to get home that evening. My daughter was around four years old. I wanted to get home before bedtime so I could make that her bedtime story. That is what I want her foundation of tour to be as well. So I'm seven years overdue, but I've been meaning for the last seven years to tell you thank you so much because that was the perfect foundation for me to begin my studies on. You're welcome. So one of the areas that you teach at Torch is in the area of Kabbalah. I wanted to begin with you explaining what is Kabbalah. So Kabbalah really basically means literally tradition or received, like a tradition what is received. So because, of course, we have the written law, we have the oral law, but behind all of that is a huge breadth of knowledge, which basically is the underlying theme behind all of the written and oral traditions, which is the esoteric understanding, or what we'll call the technology of the soul. So it's called Kabbalah because it's received from tradition. And I also kind of give another name to it, Kabbalah, is because it is really gives us the ability, like you say, to receive in the right way. In other words, we are here to receive all the pleasures and wonderful, unbelievable things that God wants to give us in the right way. And that is through developing ourselves, through earning it, and using our free choice to developing ourselves into being a vessel to receive the infinite light. Since you are, Rabbi, a Kabbalah master. I don't call myself a master at all. I just love to study it. 
and I like to share it with people. I know, but Rabbi Ari Wolby calls you the Kabbalah master. <laughs> maybe, maybe in the in the island of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. In this little city of Houston, you maybe I have to uh, beg all, to differ on that. It's all relative. Yeah, it's a great story. The Baal Shem Tov. He was searching out a suitable husband for his daughter. And he heard that in this one town, there was somebody there who might be. And he had to go and give him a test, test his Torah knowledge. He did look at other people and tested their knowledge. And so far, nobody really was up to snuff. So he sent one of his students, go and check him out to see if he'll be a suitable person. So he went to him and he asked this guy, he says, okay, I'm here to go ahead and we call it a fahert, which is kind of like a test. So the man responded, I don't know anything. I haven't known anything. And tomorrow, I also probably will know even less. So he came back with that response to the Baal Shem Tov. And the Baal Shem Tov said, that's the guy. <laughs> of course, everybody knows that the more you learn, the more you come to realize how little we know. Especially when it comes to Torah. Yes, absolutely. What I wanted to talk about is something that I believe will make podcast history. I believe it will cause this podcast to get more downloads globally than Rabbi Yaakov Wolby gets on his podcast. So I feel bad that we're going to knock him off his perch. But when it comes to Torah dissemination, the free market system reigns. So are you ready to make podcast history? I'm ready to at least try. Okay. What I want you to talk about, Rabbi, with your deep knowledge of Kabbalah is I want you to spend the next 45 minutes or so talking about all the golem that you've made, starting with those that have served or will serve in the U.S. Congress. Did you say golem? Yeah. What is golem? Isn't that the the, the creature you make? <laughs> I don't make no creature, man. <laughs> I'm tiling this episode, Rabbi Golem, the golem maker. Okay, fine. I'll admit it. I'm a... I'll admit, okay, I've got three of them in the closet. So, the, so you know, this interesting thing, there's a mission in Perkyavos, which talks about there's seven things by a wise man and seven things by a golem. How do you like that? Very important things. Seven things, seven mannerisms, seven ways that a wise man behaves. And if, if, if a person doesn't behave like that, he is considered a golem. So what is a golem? A golem, basically, we, we would refer to a not-yet-complete vessel, okay? So it's like in process. A golem is an unrefined vessel. Really, all of Kabbalah, if I would tell you all of Kabbalah on one foot, is about going, and really the Torah in general, just the Kabbalah gets you there faster because it's more direct, is about becoming an unrefined vessel, going through the process of becoming the refined vessel. Because we're all created to receive that pleasure that God wants to give us. So if you talk about what is the nature of that pleasure that God wants to give us, what is the greatest pleasure that can possibly be created, the root of all of the pleasures is nothing else other than God. God is the root of any pleasure that we might have experienced with our limited intellects. So obviously God created us in order to bestow pleasure, and that's in pleasure is himself. So basically God wants to give himself. So the idea here is, like you said, 
We call it the principle of the nomadic sufa, the bread of shame. Instantly, when it went up, so to speak, on God's will to make a creation, instantly was created something that had to receive this, this pleasure. And what was that? This universal soul that you spoke about. The universal soul turned to God and says, I don't want it. And God goes, why? So God, because you, didn't, you don't give me a chance to earn it. You didn't give me a chance to work for it. God goes, fine, I'll make a world. I'll hide myself in the world. And th- through your free choice, you will choose that pleasure that I'm going to give you. So therefore, God put us all basically to come into this world to have the opportunity to use our free will and earn the perfection and earn the pleasure that God wants to give us. So he gave us an unrefined vessel. He gave us, as with all of the, we call it a pekala in Yiddish. Pekala is those little baggies that they give to kids in the synagogues which is full of sweets and things like that. But it goes in a broader sense. It means like your little package, like your dirty laundry. He gave, he gave everybody some dirty, right? He gave everybody little uh, quirks in their personalities, ways of seeing the world, some of it true, probably a lot of it not true, ways of, of habits, bad habits. So he gave everybody their certain personality traits, and everybody's very unique, and they have to go ahead and work through their personality traits to refine themselves through Torah and mitzvot, to come to being that complete vessel to receive the infinite light. That is basically the journey in a nutshell. That's basically Kabbalah. That's basically going from a golem to a hacham. Now, the seven traits of a hacham, it does define. I'll just bring you a few. One is never interrupt your fellow. A wise man will never interrupt anybody. They let them finish, and then they respond. Isn't that amazing? So you can know if anybody interrupts you, you can instantly call them golem. Okay? Hey, you, golem. Thanks for interrupting. And if you interrupt somebody, so you know where you are, okay, you're not necessarily on the level of a wise man yet. The other thing was, traits of the wise man also was, if a guy answers you a double two questions, you always answer the first question first, and then the second question second. Don't do the reverse. You don't answer first the second question. You always go refer to the first answer and then the second. And then there's other traits, but we won't go into that. I like the interrupting part. It's very key. (laughs) You get to see in the world who is a golem and who is a wise man. All right. That's great. I I appreciate it. I will work on not becoming a golem by spending the rest of this podcast, making sure you're done speaking before I interject. So you have a really amazing story. In this podcast, I really want to sort of gear it towards Baal Teshuvahs. And you're one as well. And just to, to be able for anyone who's entering into Torah observance and just beginning to learn the heritage, to see the pathway of someone who has gone from being a secular Jew to being a rabbi, I want you to tell that story and, and start at the very beginning. You know, it's the 1980s. You're back in California, sitting on the beach, probably looking at the sunset after a day of surfing. And then what happens next? I don't know about all that. It was more like in the gym doing bench press. And then I asked the question, why is there? That's what it is. Three words. Why is there? Why is there? What does that mean? Like, why is there existence? And then the answer came like mamish through the windows, through the walls, man. And then God is all there is. That we're here to experience the all there isness of God. 
that is something that we cannot even fathom, and there's no words to put on, but we're here to have the experience of all there is, which is God. People call God, okay? So you were you were always a very deeply spiritually sensitive person. I guess so, because I don't that answer. I wasn't expecting that answer, but obviously I did come, and I also came to the awareness of that there's a God. I think even before that, where we was I was in biology class, and they were, and the, and Mr. Ezekowski was talking about the human anatomy and all of the intricacies of the human anatomy. And you know, when I saw that, and me and my other Jewish friend were looking at that, we were going like, who made this? This is too much of a design. The design is too perfect. The fact that you have white blood corpuscles and red blood corpuscles, and the white ones know how to do, and they know where to fight infection, and they go and do it, and red ones, you know. And I was like, "Who's gonna?" I was like, "This is just way amazing. This is what an amazing invention," which is really not an not a new discovery. It's like the famous philosophical. Uh, question that they always bring out in terms of when they want to question the existence of God. If you find a watch in the desert, you get to say that through billions of years, that watch came to be through the sands and the winds and the, all everything coming collecting. No, there's somebody who made this. Avram Avina with three years old says, no, the universe is too big. It's too great. Somebody made this. So anyways, so I was already on a path that, okay, I'm a creation. There's a creator. And then the question was the question that I didn't discover until after I was in college. I was still on the beach and doing everything else, uh, but I knew there was a God, but I didn't know what to do about it. Just go ahead and, and tell that whole story. What led you to the yeshiva in Israel? I have to say it was really all, all God's doing. Bottom line, okay. No matter what thoughts came into my head, I just say that my ancestors were probably praying. And God had a lot of compassion and reached with his mighty outstretched arm and pulled me out of L.A. That is, I have to give God complete and total credit and not on my own merit. So the thoughts that, okay, okay, there's a God. Okay, me, I remember. And then, of course, what happened was I came up with this, you know, I was in Cal State Northridge University and the guy was astronomy class and it was just, I couldn't take it because nothing had meaning. I was looking for meaning. And, you know, I'm looking out the window. I'm going like, come on, man. You got instruction manuals for everything. Why can't we have, why don't we have an instruction manual for life? It makes sense. If we're a creation, why wouldn't God give us an instruction manual? I bought once a, uh, a table lamp at Office Depot. And it came with instructions. You had to put the shaft in the base. It had a diagram and one piece of paper, but it had it. So everything comes with a toaster oven comes with an instruction manual. He, we, who are the most complicated creatures on this planet, wouldn't come with an instruction manual? As long as it doesn't come like those instruction manuals from Ikea. (laughs) I never saw them. I have to admit. In any case, so of course then, obviously after one year of Cal State Northridge, I needed something more experiential. I needed to travel. I figured I was going to go travel because the school system wasn't doing it. I was not motivated. So I decided to leave. I, I quit the job. I sold my car. I took all the money I earned, which wasn't a lot, maybe about three, $4,000 at the time. That was 1981, 82. It's a lot of money for your teenager in 1982. Yeah, I bought a one-way ticket to Greece. I traveled all around Europe at the wrong time of year. In any case... Yeah, I was leaving L.A. because I was in search of God. I was in search of a guide. I was in search of love because I also didn't meet up with any girlfriends there. I didn't, you know, 
I also had the idea. There's a Garden of Eden kind of situation. There was an Adam, there's an Eve, there's one man, there's one woman. He says, that sounds right to me. It sounded right to me that that should be like that, not what I saw, what was going on in L.A. with everything. So I knew there's got to be a higher level of living. So that's why I left one-way ticket, took off to Europe, traveled all around Europe, got cold in Paris, getting more colder in Belgium, and realized I got to go somewhere, and I didn't want to go back to L.A., so I figured I would go to Israel. I went to Israel to live on a kibbutz. The only reason I knew about Israel, never knew it as the homeland. It was never explained to me as that is the place where the Jewish people should be living. I knew there were Jews there, some entities called Israelis, like a different entity altogether. But I went there to give a land of kibbutz because my sister was on a kibbutz. I'll go down, traveled all the way back down, got to Israel, uh, got off the boat going like, okay, now where to go? Uh, Haifa, Tel Aviv, uh, Jerusalem has a wall around it. I got to go. It's so romantic, the idea of a city, an old city with a wall. I had to see that. So we, we and the person who I was traveling with traveled all the way down to, the, to that place. We were at the Faisal Youth Hostel in Damascus Gate, hanging out. Touring, looking at things, went to the hotel twice and never got plucked by any of those guys who there are groups of there are rabbis who like who are searching for the lost souls to pluck them out and put them in yeshivas. Never got plucked up by any of those guys. So anyways, we were traveling together and, and finally we got to Jerusalem. And then I got I was deciding, trying to decide when I was in the youth hostel there outside Damascus Gate that was in the Arab section of town before any intifadas. Right, so it was okay, and it was actually was run by Jews, non-religious Jews, probably strung out on I don't know what drugs were going around at the time. These people, I don't know what they were taking. I got in a conversation with them about spiritual matters, like the book, like the I Ching. I Ching, that's a Chinese book of you know telling fortunes. There's the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and then they started talking about Kabbalah, and that intrigued me. Kabbalah, it's Jewish. Hmm. And they're talking about Adam Arishon's skin used to be the fingernails. Our fingernails was like a trans has a transparency to it. And Adam in the Garden of Eden, before the sin, was the, had this like level of shine and transparency. I'm like, this is bizarre. And I got one of the guys says, "Listen, tomorrow I'll take you to a place where there's classes." And so yeah, I'm in. Something woke up inside of me. I'm in. So I'm waiting for the whole morning for the guy to come. Finally, at 11 o'clock, he shows up. I'm like, you're supposed to take me to the place. I'm waiting for you. Oh. <laughs> Puts on his headphones, his Walkman at the time. And he walks at a pace where I had to like kind of like jog next to him because he's walking so fast. And then he takes me to the diaspora yeshiva. And he sits me down in a class. It was the middle of a class about Jonah, Jonah, the prophet Jonah and the whale. Then that class ended, and then he introduced me, the person who, the rabbi who was teaching at the time, introduced me to Rabbi Shaptai Teicher, who was the head of the outreach in the in, in diaspora, who later became my father-in-law after 10 years. Yes. Oh, wow. So the rabbi who basically, and I had questions about the Messiah, and you know, questions about you know the redemption, because I had these kind of ideas in my mind about the world's got to be going through a phase. There's got to be a, pl- a time where the world comes to its completed state. So he answered those questions, worked to keep me in the yeshiva, 
In other words, he had to do a tag team. He had to go. He got somebody else to, to watch me hold me down almost, right? In a certain way, they fed me. They said, come back. So I left that night. I came back. And, uh, and then I was there for 10 years in diaspora. So what was it like going from being in yeshiva for the first time and being around people living? Okay. For, for sure, I didn't know what the word yeshiva meant. That's a rabbinical school, right? I, did, I had no idea. But when I got to there, of course, one of that first day, because they're tag teaming me, sitting me down with rabbis to keep me there. They kept me there the whole day, I'm telling you, till the evening. Are you saying they just didn't want to leave you by yourself for a moment because you would try to bolt out the door? Don't let him escape, right? No, they're outraged. They're doing their thing. They're doing their thing, trying to just touch the person to get him intrigued that he'll come and stay in the yeshiva. That was outreach was doing. That's how outreach was working at the time. There were many institutions that were just plucking up people off the wall or wherever wandering. And let's introduce Judaism to them, which was a, a, a yes. As a matter of fact, like that day, that day, one of the instructors I was sitting down with told me about the 613 mitzvot, the 613 commandments. And I'm like, like what is that? Well, there's the instructions. I'm like, instructions? I finally found my instruction manual. I want them now. I, I told the guy, Shh, let me see them. Well, the guy, he didn't have them you know, on hand. You, know, you understand? But once I heard that, I'm like, okay, I, I finally found something. It's gonna, and then they show the Torah. The Torah is the instruction manual, and it's Jewish. And it was something that was deep inside of me my whole life. Had to do with something about, I did have, thank God, the reform uh, upbringing that I did have, and I give a lot of appreciation to that, did give me a Jewish, a strong Jewish identity, which I appreciate. I appreciate it then, I appreciate it now. So it has, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, I give a lot of hakarasatov. Uh, recognizing the good. So I had that part about me. So this, Jewish, Kabbalah, and then they put me into a Kabbalah class, which is a short-lived, but just to like kind of like, and then they moved me into the more classic studies, which is Talmud and Halacha and things like that, Jewish law. I'll tell you my story. You can tell me, you probably have something similar to this, but growing up in a reform environment too, where I would go to, not many, but I had been to some reform services I've been to some conservative services for like a bat mitzvah. And then one time, shortly after I met you, I had not become Shemur Shabbat. I was becoming religious and I was traveling on business and I had to stay in Albuquerque and I couldn't return till Saturday morning. And near the hotel where I was staying was a Chabad. And I thought, oh, cool. I'll just go do Shabbat services at the Chabad. That should be interesting. And, you know, in a reforms synagogue or conservative, you just get to go climb in, sit in the back. You got the manual. The rabbi says, turn to this page. I'll read this and you read this and you can sort of let your mind wander and you don't really have to. Exactly. <laughs> and now. You get bored out of your mind and then, or you're hungry. I could be thinking about what I want to eat when I get home and <laughs> where I'm going to go tomorrow. Now I go to the Chabad place and it's not like that. Everyone has a prayer book, and I realize like everyone has to participate in this process that's about to happen, and I'm totally freaking out and panicking. They realize I don't know Hebrew, so they're very nice, and they give me an English sitter and sort of point to me. They know I have no idea what's going on because that was not what I ever experienced before, ever. I'm sure you probably experienced something like that as well. Even when I first got to the yeshiva, are you kidding me? Clueless. Clueless. I know for, you know, most people know Hashem. The word Hashem means God. 
So I didn't know that, and I'm sitting in a class, and I'm hearing people debate about Hashem. Well, would have Hashem have said this, and if Hashem did that, I, 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 and I says, "What's a Hashem?" And they'll look at me, and they just, you know, how the guys turn down like hopeless. You know, they turn, they their faces go down, and they nod hope. Right? That was me. I had not a clue. They give me a prayer book. That was it. They didn't even point to the page. You understand? They completely abandoned me. If it wasn't for Reuven Halevi, one of my spiritual mentors, and, and definitely my one of my spiritual fathers, okay? There were three people who brought me in. Rabbi Teicher, I said, was one. Label Greenberg and Rabbi, and Reuven Halevi. Reuven Halevi was the mellow hippie dude, ex-hippie, total ex-hippie, still mellow. And he knew that like, I was like not navigating the sitter. So he says brother, you just take three steps back, three steps forward, and just open your heart to God and just talk about whatever. And when he did that, that was just, okay, I'm okay. I was really tense that moment. They handed me a book, and I didn't know what was happening. And I was angry, actually, because they, I don't know, does anybody tell me where they are? Just take three steps forward and just open your heart to God and talk any language. And I was like, so okay with that. So it kept me in, kept me going, because otherwise I was like, I'm out of here. I wish she was there at the Habbalah with me. <laughs> <laughs> at least you had an English. They hand, I'm in Israel. It's all Hebrew. Right. There was no English sitter. There was no art scroll. Nothing. Might have had some, you know, English someone, who knows, not a lot. So what did you do when you're, you're, they're wanting you to dive in now and teach you how to do this and all you have is Hebrew? And I assume you don't know how to read Hebrew. So you got to go ahead and I had to go and sit with somebody. And he who went over with me the olive base because I barely remembered how to read. I really didn't. I knew the olive base and the vowels, and it just it came back to me after a couple of lessons. I with one time, and I was able to read just to read the words, not understand a thing. That was Ulpan, or really, I quit the Ulpan. I just wrote over every word, or I got a linear sitter, or now you have English sitters, which has all the translations. So I use that as a guide. Don't forget my experience and it's not like a lot of the like you mine was like total immersion because i came from la right into jerusalem total immersion totally different world i didn't i wasn't driving by an in and out burger going gosh i miss those it wasn't i wasn't tempted with that it wasn't around gone so you have a different test a different challenge that you still are in the midst of it and you have to like be able to go ahead and navigate and, you know, fend off whatever negativity is out there. I guess the learning curve is a lot steeper when you're immersed in it. Yeah, there was no other distraction. It was just Torah, Torah, Torah. That was, and the, and the school I was in was just Torah, Torah, Torah. You just got to keep learning. And I just, we just kept learning. And we didn't know the language, but we plugged at it and plugged at it and plugged at it until eventually we got it. So it's harder for you, I have to say, than me. I was totally immersed for, you know, I was 19 years in Israel. So as opposed to the people here are like, okay, awakening now. Oh, my gosh. No, it could be done as you're doing it and many other people that I see are doing it. it, it, But I I have to give you kudos, tip my hat to you, because the challenges that you have are different than mine. I mean to ask you this question as well. What do you think is better to saying the structured prayers like the Shemino Esrei and the Shema. Is it better to say it in English so it's more heartfelt if you don't understand, assuming you don't understand Hebrew or because Hebrew is such a powerful language, it's the holy tongue 
for me to go ahead and read it in Hebrew, even though I don't really understand what each word means, but saying it in the Hebrew language, which is more powerful? Great question. Bottom line, more powerful is to say it in Hebrew because the letters are so powerful and the vowels are so powerful, but you got, you can't do it. It's like nobody from the outside who's just coming in raw is going to be able to jump into that and get something out of it. You need a something to that has some kind of meaning. So therefore, we suggest to people, you have to do the balance. You got to do some in English, where you're comfortable, and you practice a little in Hebrew. Let's say you start with the Shema in Hebrew. Everybody knows the translation of just those first two lines of Shema. So that's a great meditation to start with. And then you work on the first paragraph and the second and the third. And that's like the main thing to have it done in Hebrew. And then you work and then you do everything else in English. And then eventually, eventually, you know, you train yourself to go ahead and be able to say it in Hebrew, like with a linear or interlinear, and they have all kinds of different ways of doing it, where you can incorporate the words and with the meaning. You okay. have to have you have to have meaning, but you know, um, like I said, you know, I think the Havetz Chaim was asked, you know, and he would say, "Good, do it in Hebrew." I believe that's what he said. But there is something powerful about saying those Hebrew words, regardless of whether you even know what they mean. Letters are unbelievable. To say it is so powerful. The the word Baruch, Atah, Hashem, right, is so powerful. Those words, and to meditate on the letters. A lot of times you'll find in in some synagogues, I don't want to say all, even though I'd like to say all, there's a lot of Milumada. That means too much by rote, praying. It's not... You know, praying is not supposed to be that. It's supposed to be service of the heart, which means you got to feel it. So, an p- important aspect is you got to get into the feeling part of whatever it is that you're saying. That's the ultimate goal. It'd be it's best to do it in Hebrew, because the letters, as we know, the creation was made with 22 letters. The Torah is the blueprint of creation. But not like the blueprint that you and me know, that where you make the house, like a blueprint for making a house. Once the house is built, you fold up the blueprint and it goes on a shelf. This blueprint is in constant motion. This blueprint is in constant effect. And Rabbi Kiva Tatz gives the great metaphor of the projector, the film, and the screen, the projector screen. The projector is the light of God, and God said, let there be light the first day. And then there is the film, which is the Torah, the blueprint. And then there's the projection screen upon what the, the film is projecting onto. And that is our existence. Our world is a film screen. You, we are living in a film screen that is constantly being projected. This is what Kabbalah teaches, that is constantly being emanated, animated by the creator. We see how this blueprint is in affecting animating every single thing in creation every single moment that's why every single thing has to have its root in the torah for good or bad they asked haman haman is uh we're getting into adar very soon the month of adar which has the holiday of purim purim has the enemy called haman or haman we call him in hebrew but haman they asked in the talmud haman where is he in the torah everything's got to be in there everything including Haman, this evil, wicked man. And they go, sure, right in the Garden of Eden. When Adam was hiding after he had eaten from the Tree of Knowledge, God comes and he goes, Adam, where are you? Hamin ha'etz 
Did you eat from this tree? Hamin is Haman, the same letters. A little different vowel. But they go, that's where Haman is. Haman is in that level of concealment. The idea here is everything's in the Torah. So now the Torah is the blueprint. Good. But what made the blueprint? The letters made the blueprint. The letters had they become before the Torah itself. 22 letters. We look at it as 22 primordial energy fields that are used to be. It's a, it's a whole other topic. I don't know if you want to get into that. Let's do it. <laughs> Called the primordial Torah, as Rabbi Kaplan calls it. Which is basically, it was asked the question, not to go into where it's brought in the Baal Shem Tov, how he explains it, but basically he, it's asked, you know, how is it that if the Torah was written 2,000 years before creation, and that's how we have a verse that proves that, it was written before creation, blueprint, before creation. So then how come all of the stories are laid out here when we know that everybody who exists is, has free choice? How, how can that be? So he explained, basically, before creation, the Torah was created as this energy and information, a random soup, alphabet soup. Let's look at that as an alphabet soup, as my father-in-law puts it, alphabet soup in the sky of energy and information. Okay? And so what happened was, as everybody played out their roles through their choice-making, all of the main characters that we have in the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, go to before that, Moses, as they did that, such as when Adam reached for the tree of knowledge to eat it, so then the letters telling that storyline then fell into place to tell you that storyline. So we have an entire storyline in the Bible. Basically, that's what the Bible is made up. The five books of Moses is made up of either it's two things. It's either storyline and the 613 directives, I call them, or instructions. Not commandments. We have free will, but they are instructions. Like God is seriously advising you to follow this. That's what the, the Zohar calls it, Eitzot. Okay? Eitim or Pikudim. We'll get into that later. It's in a whole other conversation. Okay? But we'll look at it as advice. So you have the Torah, the Torah which is the storyline, and the advice. So basically what happened was, as, as Noah made his decisions and made his choices and did what he did, those, those letters from this primordial Torah then fell into the form of the Torah that we have today. So the letters which form the Torah basically hook up to also that primordial soup of energy and information that existed, let's say, before everything happened in terms of its cosmic existence. But that storyline ends... Before they go into Israel, yet the story of creation has been continuing ever since. Yes, good. Glad you brought that up. So, thank God for the holy masters. The Baal Shem Tov always taught that, and they all teach it, and they all know it, that the Torah is eternal. That means it has to have its relevance for us in the here and now. Every single element of the Torah has absolute 100% relevance. Even if you would read something that seems to be, I don't know what I need to, especially when they list names. They list the names of the seven kings of Edom that ruled before the Jewish king came. You know, and I'm like, what do I need to know those seven names for? Unbelievable deep mysteries in that one little passage. Unbelievable. A whole book that thick is written about it. 
just about that one little passage of those eight kings. So a lot of mysteries are into all of these names and all of the letters in the Torah. Every single thing that the Baal Shem Tov says, so he says that everything has its relevance. Every single mitzvah, even though you would think, what is this relevant to me? It has a relevance. You have to find it. We have to find it. You have to look through the books. Now, thank God, so many books, there's so many holy rebbies who wrote down that you can find basically how every single Torah portion and the mitzvahs, how they have a direct relevance to us in terms of our souls, in terms of giving the ability to connect. Just a side little point. When we speak about the 613 instructions, the mitzvah, the word for that instructions actually that's given is mitzvot. Now the word mitzvah comes from a root called savat, which means basically connection. So it's not 613 mitzvot commandments. You could read it as instruction, or you can read it as connection, meaning the ability to connect. I think I remember hearing a story by uh, Roger Cominance. He wrote the book, The Jew and the Lotus. He went to a trip to go see the Dalai Lama. And this guy was not a religious Jew at the time, I think, believing when he wrote it. Strong identity, but not 100% knowledgeable. And he once was saying to the Dalai Lama, or somebody was saying, he was saying, you know, you guys got seven mitzvot. Like the, the nations, the Gentiles have seven, and we got 613. I don't know how he said it. But then the Dalai Lama said, these are 613 opportunities. They're opportunities to connect. What an unbelievable thing. And the whole thing, when you look at it, and the Torah, and the whole purpose of the Torah was that the revelation at Mount Sinai where the Ainso, the creator, the light of the infinite, came down and handed over the instruction manual. And here it is. That's like, wow, we got it. This is just so amazing. And from then on, now, basically, it's saying, here is the instruction manual to connect to me. You're in a distant place, but through this, you'll be able to reconnect with the infinite, because that's what we're here for, to reconnect with the infinite light and to have that relationship with So basically, it's a book on relationships. How do you like that? What do you call the mitzvot that are unexplainable? There's a word for it. Chukim. Chukim. Like? Paraduma. It's the biggest one. The the red heifer. Some of those that do apply to us, like? Uh, Laws of of kashrut, being kosher. That's a chuk. Would you believe it? You can't reason. The dietitian can't go in and explain why a cow who... It has a lesion versus one that doesn't. Yeah, a non-kosher right. slaughtered cow versus a slaughtered a kosher slaughtered cow, etc. All the way down the list. I mean, listen, I, there's a lot of things that do make sense that do fall into the place right. of logic, like not to eat a bottom feeder. No right. one wants to eat a cockroach or cockroach of the sea. And by and large, there's no reason right. for that. Do you think those that are unexplained that there's maybe a hierarchy that those are more precious as far as? creating that relationship? I will answer you yes in this way because it requires us to go to a supra-rational conscious state of thinking. In other words, in order to be able to do that, you need a lot more amuna, a lot more faith in order to fulfill those. Obviously, if I tell you to do something that makes sense, okay, it makes sense. But if I tell you to do something that doesn't make sense, why should I do that? Especially if you tell me to do it, I've got a natural inclination within me to go, no. And then especially if you have the Sutton and you have all of the nations around you looking at you going, 
there's no reason for this. What are you doing this for? And you still do it? Yes, on that hand, since, don't forget, it's according to the effort is the reward. The more lengths that you go to strain yourself to fulfill the mitzvahs, to the more detailed, to want to give God nachas, to want to give God gratification. One of the mitzvot that's dearest to me is when I learned early on, like six years ago, that a man can't shave the hair off his face or the 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 corners of the beers. Yes. The reason this freaked me out is because I can't grow a nice beard like you. Whenever I just don't shave because I'm lazy, my wife tells me I look like a homeless member of Al-Qaeda. I mean, I just it just looks blotchy, looks horrible. And so I called Rabbi Yokoff Wilby and said, uh, I can't grow a beard. And then he explained to me how you can use an electric razor. So I started doing that, which is a very time-consuming process to use an electric razor versus a straight razor. But I remember doing it. I remember thinking about how the fact that I didn't understand it was – to me, very similar to how when my wife asked me to do something, and I don't get why she wants me to do that, but I just do that for her, that it, it's more meaningful for her. That was exactly what it was answered to me when I asked why I can't eat pork. The doctor said, that's it. In other words, the doctor understands you more than you. And if he prescribes you to avoid this, you avoid it. And that totally made sense to me because God, who made us, he understands us way more than we understand us. And therefore, if he says, avoid this, do this, I don't care. Was there a Sinai experience, yes or no? Everybody has to answer that question deeply within. We firmly believe that the or ain't self, the light of the infinite, our creator revealed himself in this one-time experience to mankind. Everybody was invited. It wasn't exclusive. It was not. Don't think that it was exclusive. But God did want to give the Torah to the Jewish people. Because it was as to be an instruction manual, to be a role model nation for the world. That if, if, if one society, one family, one big family, and, and basically this nation can function in the right way, they will model the utopian society, then everybody will follow. That was God's plan. Everyone will benefit. Yes, the entire world will come to realize what's the purpose of creation, what are we here to do, and let's do it. And we're all in. And which we will be. But the revelation at Sinai is just a big turning point that everybody has to really come to grips with. If this is, if God gave us this, and this is the instruction manual, and he says, don't eat this, that's good enough for me. That's the hard part, is accepting that. Because I, I spent six months just studying the logical proofs for it, when I had enough proofs after one month. But the reason it took me six is because I didn't want to. The cheeseburger was calling your name. I I literally would do this in the morning, eating my breakfast, my Atkins breakfast of a plate of bacon. And I would read these logical proofs, knowing the back of my mind that once I have to accept this, that I can't have my bacon anymore. (laughs) And that was hard. Whoa. Like I say, I was like thrown into a different immersion chamber. You were still fighting the, the demons while they're looking at you from the plate. I remember asking myself, once I accepted it, I said, who probably knows more, God or Dr. Atkins? And I decided God knows better, so I put the bacon away. You know, the best way that it was described to me was a great story. I actually got it from a Stephen Covey book, and I've heard of some rabbis say it at great sermons fantastic parable of this there was some the u.s navy were doing maneuvers off the coast of somewhere who knows where you know they got all their battleships it's a night it's a stormy night and they're out there doing the maneuvers and all of a sudden the guy on the radar says there's a ship that we're in collision course with at like 10 degrees 
And so the captain of the ship says, "Would signal to that ship because it's not a re- registered ship. It's not one of the ones in the in the in the war games that we're playing." To move 10 degrees starboard, whatever that means. So we're not on collision course. So then they get a message back from that ship. You move 20 degrees the other direction. Now the captain says, well, chutzpah. He doesn't know who we are. He says, you tell him to move. And then you get the message, you move. And finally the captain says, you signal to him, we are a battleship and you better move. And they got a signal back. We're a lighthouse. You better move. <laughs> right? So we think we're on a course and we're so powerful and we're so mighty. And, you know, these 613 connections, you can look at it as like these are certain energies that we need to hook up with. And when we fall out of this connection, when we fall out of the plug-in, so what's going to happen? You're going to hit the lighthouse. There are principles which we will hit the rocks with when you fall out of line with the alignment of the 613. Like, you know, you can't be in a rushing roller coaster ride. You can't put your arm out. You just can't. So the same thing, we're in a flow here. We're in a, an emotion here. And to the degree that we can align ourselves with those 613 connections will be our degree of connectivity with the light of the infinite which is what we're in the process of doing anyways as we're becoming a vessel. Back when you were cautioning my kitchen, like a year ago, you mentioned that the Torah was an exile. I meant to ask you to expound on that, but we had obviously a lot of stuff going on with my utensils in the pot and everything else. But explain what you meant by that. So I did hear my father-in-law say it, you know, off the cuff one time, and then I actually saw it in a book by Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, And I was kind of shocked by it. And I asked him, what does that mean that the Torah is in exile? Well, you can understand kind of historically, since we do, we thank God what we have now, preserved, amazing. We still are doing what we were doing 2,000 years ago, still learning Talmud. So even seeing that, you also have to ask the question, what does it mean that the Torah is in exile? Here we are. So I asked my father-in-law, and he said, because everybody thinks that they have the whole thing, but it's fragmented. When we were in exile, when we were sent into exile, of course, we went to various places, and you cannot say that we were not influenced by those places. It's obvious we were. As much as we tried not to be, it bled in in different ways, and, and it affected even our mentality where we were. Even if, let's say, you don't say we if we interacted with, with the nations that we were in, even on the mental plane, our connection basically with the environment around us, in the Vritis zone, what I'm called the thought waves, it still affects us. You're influenced no matter what. It's a very subconscious also thing, very deep thing. So we were all influenced by the nations we were in and whatever fragments of the Torah, because when we were in exile, it's fragmented. We weren't able to study and concentrate and hand it over the same way anymore. That's why it was written down, the oral law. So my father-in-law said basically that the Torah's fragment, everybody thinks they got everything it takes to fulfill Torah. Whatever branch of Judaism that you see out there, and I can call several branches, okay? Ashkenaz Fardim. Hasidic Litvish or Misnagdim. Those are the people who are against the Hasidim, the followers of the Baal Shem Tov. And then there was the non-followers of the Baal Shem Tov. And then there's Ashkenaz, which come from basically mostly from Europe. And the Sephardim basically came from Africa, from Spain. Those are the Sephardic natures. Okay? 
everybody thinks that they have it. So that was one explanation, that the Torah is in exile. And of course, to bring the Torah out of exile, you have to put them all together. You have to take the, the, what each one have to offer in a positive and growth sense and what resonates within. Everybody has a fragment of it. Nobody has all of it. This is my opinion. And then there's a second opinion, which is the Torah is in exile, which is it's all there. The instruction manual is there. In terms of just the handing over, certain things were not necessarily accentuated to the degree that they should have been. In other words, certain things were emphasized and pushed. Certain agendas, parts of the Torah were emphasized and certain parts not as emphasized. So let's say, for example, loving your neighbor as yourself. Zuklal Gadol Torah, Rabbi Kiva says, this is the principle of the Torah. Now, it's an amazing principle when you think about it, but is it taught, number one, in schools? The first thing, to love every Jew. You know, before we go into pray, the Arizal, the holy Rabbi Yitzchak Gloria, the 16th century Kabbalist, says you have to say this before you go into pray. Behold, I now accept upon myself the positive commandment to love my neighbor as myself. You have to love every Jew. I'm talking about a heart-pounding love, a deep love. Okay, so I would definitely go as far as to say as that has not necessarily been accentuated. I will bring you a great story. So the there was the the past Gadol, this man here, called the Stiplerov. I saw him twice. Amazing man, light shining from his head. I saw it. Lived in Bnei Brak. He was the man of the generation, the leading rabbi. So every year they make his matzah. It's very special. People go in. They're taken over. They make sure. But it's now it gets put on the shelf. All of a sudden, the rabbi goes in with his trusted servant and helper, comes into the stores, and he says, yeah, we're here for, for the rabbi's matzah. So the guy goes back, and then he's waiting a little while, and then the servant goes back. The rabbi, the stiplerov, who's in the store still, hears screaming going on. So he goes back there and he goes, what's going on? He says, they lost the matzahs. And they're screaming at each other. And he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. He says, where does the mitzvah of matzah outweigh the mitzvah of loving your neighbor as yourself? Where do you get that measuring that this outweighs this? Quite simple. Amazing story. Yeah. Okay? Like I say, Torah and exile, that certain things were emphasized, like mitzvahs between man to God, it happens to be, I personally see a lot of it, that people are really strong in that. But when it comes to mitzvahs between man to man, they're less strong. So that means the Torah is in exile because the parts that need to be accentuated, that love, that connection. And plus, really, I have to say, the Kabbalah. The Kabbalah teaches that deep soul connection. It goes right to the chase. It cuts through all of the stuff, the external stuff, and gets you right to the soul of the matter by understanding I have a, I am a soul and this is how I connect. And then when you understand the mitzvahs and what you're doing in terms of relating to God, it's the most powerful mystic experience ever. There's a line at the end of the Shemot Esrei when it talks about granting us our share of Torah. Oh. 
I, yeah, prayer is the most deepest of prayers of all. Is that what this is referring to, that we each have some unique perspective and then sort of... The- and you need it, and you can't live without it, no. and you're not complete without it. Yes. So let's say, for example, my father-in-law, Lava Shalom, said about the Sephardim, they have what's called emuna Peshutta, simple faith. That is a huge commodity. That is probably the, uh, that is such a huge commodity for the soul. And it gets you through anything. When you just have simple faith, man, what you can accomplish. Now, some people, they think more sophisticated. And it's very hard for them to grasp simple faith like that. So that's, let's say, like one thing that they happen to hold very good internally and practice it. So there's an aspect of Torah that's expressed that everybody else in the world could use. You understand? It's like their gift, their Torah portion. But even if you get to a more specific, like V'sein Helkenu Basora Sechavet, give us our portion in your Torah. That's right, everybody has a portion in Torah. Everybody has a very unique soul expression, a soul frequency that they must transmit. So if they're not, not transmitting that soul frequency, not only do they lose out on expressing their potential, not only does they not get the, they miss out on the opportunity to express God, a God's infinite light by being that exp- part of that expression, but everybody else misses out too. We need that Torah. So, so th- is that something that's just going to happen when we all return to Israel, that those everyone has their own piece of Torah perfected, but when they all come together... Their own unique expression, which, you know, I can't wait to hear. And everybody else can't wait to hear. And then I got mine to express. And nobody can't wait, can't wait to hear. And everybody needs it and everybody gets from each other. And that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be that homogenous unity that we're all supposed to be. Listen, when you're doing that and that give and take, that's what everything is about. Because it brings down in the Tikkuni Zohar when Jews are giving to each other, whether it's knowledge or whether it's actual, even money. Even physically, you're doing chesed. That causes, because we're so connected to the cosmic realms, in the highest of all realms, that causes like worlds to shatter, worlds to create, and world and energy to connect. That, in turn, bleeds back down into this world, what we call shefa, or abundance, or blessing. In other words, when we do things down here, it awakens things up there. When things become awakened up there, then they bleed back down to here. It's kind of like that cycle. That's what the Kabbalah explains what it means when you pray, the different realms, realms of consciousness. It get, gets you to the chase. It gets you right to the mission of why we're here very direct and very fast. Awesome. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Rabbi Cohen, for spending this time. Appreciate your time and you sharing uh, all your wisdom with Pleasure. us. Pleasure. Thank you Thank so much. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.